Hello and welcome back. We are continuing our study in 1 John chapter 2. Today we're going to be covering verses 15 through 17. This is our uh, men's breakfast study here at the Rock Community Church. And uh, just another reminder that uh, anyone out there who would like to join us on Wednesday mornings at 645 for our men's breakfast uh, where we study God's Word, and particularly in 1 John right now, and we have a great breakfast, enjoy some fellowship, and have a time of prayer. Uh, if anyone would like to join us, we'd love to have you. So check out our website, trcclive.org, if you'd like to join us for more information on men's breakfast. Well, let's jump into our passage today. Um, again, we're in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 15 through 17 about do not love the world. <clears throat> so, starting in verse 15, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So as believers... I'll start with this. As believers, we are promised certain blessings, right? We are promised eternal life, right? Salvation. And that's in John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know that famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Salvation from the penalty of our sin. Uh, we're also promised heaven. As believers, right? Revelation 2.7 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Tree of life being symbolic of heaven. Another thing we're promised is paradise, right? Uh, the thief on the cross was told directly by Jesus, You shall be with me in paradise. And Revelation 2.7, which you just read, talks about the paradise of God. Believers are promised peace, right? Romans 14, we're promised peace. And, and in Philippians 4.7, we're promised peace beyond comprehension. And of course, in, uh, in uh, uh, Romans again, Romans 14, we're promised joy. Joy. And also in John 16 and verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you who will that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So we are promised as believers, repentant sinners who put our faith and trust in Christ, we're promised eternal life, we're promised heaven, we're promised paradise, peace, and joy. All of these blessings are promised to us by God as believers. But we are also called to suffer, right? We're called to suffer for Christ, for the sake of Christ, for God's kingdom. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will himself perfect, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. We are called to suffer for God's kingdom. 
And so if we keep that in mind as we look at the passage that we just read about not loving the world, not loving the things in the world, and how if the love if if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. If we keep that in mind, we can get a really clear idea of what this passage is actually saying to us. One of the main themes of the epistle of First John is the idea of love, right? We are called to love. In First John chapter two, verse ten, he says. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Over in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Chapter 4, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Chapter 4, verse uh, 12, I'm sorry, verse 16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Our God is a God of love. And clearly Christians are called to love, right? The great commandment. Jesus stated the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he said the second commandment is like it, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is what defines us as Christians, and it is, it is how the world will know that we are disciples of Christ. The world knows us by our love. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's how the world will know that we are disciples of Christ. Before I became a Christian, I identified Christians by their love. And if they didn't love, if they claimed to be Christians and they weren't loving, I considered them hypocrites. There is another aspect, another dimension to this commandment of love. And we see it in our passage today. There is a love that God hates. There's a love that God hates. God commands us, God commands Christians to not love the world. He says, do not love the world. It's a pretty strong statement, right? Do not love the world. James 4.4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Another strong statement. If we're a friend of the world, we are an enemy of God. So let's, let's, first thing we want to do is examine what exactly the Apostle John means when he says the world. What's he talking about when he says the world? Don't love the world. Well, the word, the word for world is used six times in this passage, so it's clearly a theme here. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about the created order, 
right? Nature, creation, the, the, the physical globe. Is that what we're talking about? Well, no, uh, John can't be referring to the earth here. Uh, he can't be referring to the universe and all that the Lord created within it. He's not talking about nature. We're not being told to hate nature. The Bible speaks in many places about uh, uh, the glory of the Lord being uh, being spoken in creation. In fact, Psalm 19 speaks of this, of creation telling of the glory of the Lord. It says the heavens and the earth are all said to tell the work of God's hands. And if you were to explore the universe, as, as many scientists have done, and the further you go out into the far reaches of space, I believe we have a, a, a man-made machine that is, is just going out further and further. I think it's gone beyond our solar system now and is making its way further and further out into the universe. The, more, the further you go into the universe, the more it speaks of the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God. The humongous awesomeness of God that he could create such a vast universe. Many of the Psalms sing praises of the glory of God's creation. It's a reflection. The creation is a reflection of God's glory. So we're not talking about the creation here. We can love the creation. Not more than we love the creator, but we can love the creation. I love going out in nature and going on hikes and uh, being out there camping and whatnot. We're not talking about creation. Okay? Are we talking then about the people? Because, you know, remember, uh, uh, the world can mean people. John 3.16 said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's talking about the people there. We can't be talking about the people because God gave his only begotten son to the human world that, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the people of the world, the people in the world. That's the world that God so loved. It's the human world. We are called to be Christ-like, right? And so we are not called to hate the people in the world. We're called to love them. Whether they're believers, believers or not, we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're, we're not to uh, hate the people. We're not, it says, do not love the world. He's not talking about the people. We're called to love them. We're even commanded to love our enemies and to love those who hate us. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven that's matthew 5 44 and 45 love your enemies he says pray for those who persecute you we're not talking about the people here so we're not talking about creation we're not talking about the people what is john talking about when he says do not love the world what is he talking about the greek word from my understanding is cosmos k-o-s-m-o-s Cosmos is the opposite of chaos. Chaos is disorder, right? That's just chaos, disorder. 
Cosmos is an ordered system. An ordered system. And so if it's not in the context, if, if the world here in this passage is not in the context of creation, and if it's not in the context of people, if it can't mean those things, then we can say with certainty that this is referring to the evil system of the world, the ordered system of the world, this evil ordered system of the world. That is to say, when John is talking about the world here, he's talking about the invisible spiritual system of evil. The invisible spiritual system of evil. This system, this world system, is run by Satan. It's, it's, uh, it's led by Satan. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Uh, John refers to him in John 12 and John 14. John refers to Satan as the ruler of the world. Satan is ruling the world, according to uh, John 12 and John 14. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul uh, calls him calls Satan the god of this world. Satan is the god of this world. And even though God is in complete control... It is Satan and his evil system which govern the world. God has allowed Satan to govern this world through his evil system, this invisible spiritual system of evil. And people say, well, aren't Christians supposed to love? Aren't we supposed to just love people, love the world? That's what we're called to. We're supposed to love. God loved the world. Well, yeah, God loved the people. But aren't we supposed to love? Well, part of loving something is to hate anything that opposes it. Part of loving something is to hate anything that opposes that thing that you love. I love my kids. I love my kids. But that, is me, that does not mean that I don't correct them when they're misbehaving. It doesn't mean that I affirm them in their sin. Their sin is opposing them, whether they realize it or not. Their sin, sin is doing them harm. So I'm not going to affirm their sin. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to correct them. If I, were, if I uh, was going to affirm them in their sin and just kind of let them do what they want, that would not be loving them. That would be hating them. But I love my kids, and so I'm going to correct them, and I'm not going to affirm them in their sin. As Christians, we hate, we are to hate this invisible spiritual system of evil, this, this system uh, that is led by Satan, this, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. We're to hate, we are to hate that system that is this world. People can love the world and find their meaning in it and their, their purpose in it, but the believer does not find meaning in the world. The believer does not find purpose in the world. We find meaning in God. We find our purpose in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we're going to have to suffer for that. We're going to face backlash for that. We might lose friends or family for that. I've 
we've been attacked. I have been attacked. My wife and I have been attacked for what we believe. And we try to do it as much as we can in love, but just the idea that we are against some of the things of this world has gotten us into some hot water with family, friends. We've lost friends. Thankfully, we haven't lost family, but we've lost friends. We've been uh, lied about and and slandered and um, belittled for our faith. And most Christians, most genuine Christians, can say the same thing. We have several examples of godly suffering in the Bible, right? Lots of examples of this, and not the least of which is Jesus, right? Betrayed, you know, by, uh, his, by one of his disciples, Judas. Falsely accused by the people he came to die for. Beaten, scourged, murdered on the cross. Jesus suffered. He suffered for God's kingdom. Most of the apostles suffered a martyr's death at the hands of the world, right? Horrible, horrible deaths. Peter, tradition tells us, was Peter was crucified upside down. Much more painful to be, than being crucified right side up, which is in and of itself painful. Suffering. The Old Testament prophets suffered and died at the hands of the idolatrous, idolatrous Israelites. Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, who uh, tradition tells us Isaiah was sawn in half. We read about that in, 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 uh, in the Bible. The Bible talks about how uh, someone had suffered who was sawn in half, and tradition tells us that that was Isaiah. Can you imagine? But I want to I look at a small portion of, of the, the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. We're going to use this as our example for suffering for the sake of Christ, not loving the world, but instead um, putting our trust in Christ. Because as it says in, in our passage, in verse 17, the world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Chapter 4, we see, a, uh, I'm sorry, First Timothy 4. Um, the, the, First Timothy 4 is an interesting chapter. This is the last mm, chapter that the Apostle Paul writes in his life. This is right before he goes... Uh, he, he's martyred for the faith. And so chapter 4 is his last uh, chapter he ever writes. And you can kind of hear it. In, if you were to read this aloud, you can kind of hear it. Uh, it's just this kind of almost dejected, you know, maybe he wasn't dejected, but I just, I just get the sense, maybe it's just me, I get the sense that he is just kind of, he knows his life is winding down. He knows his life here on earth is coming to an end. He knows he's about to be martyred. And he just sounds so, he's content, but he just sounds uh, like he's so, um, so done, so done with this world, you know. In chapter 4, we see, uh, in First Timothy 4, we see a list of the various people that were in, in the ministry with Paul. And this kind of indicates that there were a group of people that surrounded Paul throughout his ministry. 
Paul wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. But what makes chapter 4 of uh, first, Second Timothy, what makes this chapter so unique is that, like I said, it's the last chapter that he ever writes, and soon after he's martyred, and he indicates that this is obviously on the horizon, right? In, in verse 6 of chapter 4, where he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In 2 Timothy, Paul is concerned with passing the baton to Timothy. He wants Timothy to take over the ministry. Timothy is in a, in a serious struggle in his ministry, so, so Paul is encouraging him in his ministry. He's encouraging young Timothy. He's encouraging, encouraging him in his faith. He's encouraging him in sound doctrine. He's encouraging him in his suffering. This is the mentor passing the baton to the pupil. And so in, in, in 1 Timothy 1, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1, verse 14, he tells, he tells Timothy to guard the treasure of the word of God. And then in verse 15, he says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. How can, the, how can that be? All who are in Asia turned away from the Apostle Paul? How can that be? This is, the place, this is the place where Paul ministered the most. And he said they all abandoned him. That's astounding to me. The price of discipleship was too high for those people. And so Timothy actually names a couple of them in, in 2 Timothy I'm sorry, Paul names a couple of them in uh, 2 Timothy 4, right? He talks about how uh, Alexandra did harm. Alexander, the coppersmith, did much harm to me, he says. And in, in, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he, he says to Timothy, Make every effort to come to me soon, right? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So here we're introduced to Demas. Demas, this man Demas, was a close and personal friend of the Apostle Paul. A man who labored with Paul in ministry and in evangelism. And Demas was in uh, some pretty, uh, pr pretty renowned company. He, he, was, uh, he was surrounded by men of God. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician. This is Luke, the, the guy that wrote the book of Luke. He wrote Acts. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. In Philemon 23 and 24, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Demas was associated with some pretty formidable company, men who were faithful preachers of the word of God, men of prayer, Church planners, 
Men who suffered for the sake of Christ. And yet, in that very company, we read in 2 Timothy 4.10 that Demas, having loved this present world, deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica. How could this happen? Demas, who had probably the greatest spiritual leader of all time, the Apostle Paul, Demas succumbed to the temptations of the world. I know this hurt Paul. I, I, it had to have. It had to hurt him. Let's, let's, actually, let's read just a little bit of 2 Timothy 4. Right? It says, um, Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me and, gone, and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark, Timothy. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak which I left at at Troas with Carpus. And bring the books, Timothy, especially the parchments. I mean, you just get this sense that he's just winding down his life here on earth. Alexander the coppersmith did much did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Paul was suffering, boy. He suffered for the sake of Christ in many ways, not the least of which would be men like Demas, deserting him, having loved the present world. God never promises us an easy ride as disciples of Christ. He tells us in his Bible that we're gonna, it's going to be rough. He promises that. But we have a hope that no matter how hard things get as, as a result of our faith, our hope is in the promises of God. That we will be with him in heaven. For all eternity. Remember those blessings I listed when we started? Right? Eternity in heaven, paradise, peace, joy. These are promised to us as disciples of Christ. Paul understood this. And so I believe that even as he was writing 2 Timothy 4, Paul had a peace and a joy that surpasses all comprehension. He understood what awaited him in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he, at one point, he had been taken up to the third heaven, is what he called it. He had been taken up to the third heaven. And he talks about it in the third person. He never actually says it was himself, although we can surmise that it was Paul himself. But he says, I was caught up into paradise, hearing inexpressible words. He had a taste of what awaited him upon his death and upon upon his arrival in heaven. And that is the same hope that all believers have. Paradise, hearing inexpressible words, because we have been graciously saved, graciously pulled out from the abyss of our sin by a loving God. It can be hard being a disciple of Christ. 
But we are not to be conformed to this world, but we were to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 2. One of my favorite verses. We are not to be conformed to this world. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through God's word. Transformed. This world is getting further and further away from God's truth, is it not? And stand up for the truth and righteousness can be difficult. But we're here to do that. We are to do That's why we're here. We're here to do that and to do it with grace and humility. If it wasn't for our, our command to evangelize this world, to love the people and to, to uh, share the gospel with them, God would have taken us to heaven at the moment of our salvation. But we are here to stand up for the truth, to, to live a righteous life in front of an unbelieving world, and to share the gospel in love with grace and humility. But we are not to affirm evil. And we are not to suppress the truth. We can still enjoy the things of this world. Okay, this is, this is a, a, an important point. We can still enjoy the things in the world. Okay? I enjoy the th- things that the world has to offer sometimes. Whether it's food... Um, you know, restaurants, that's fun. Uh, Disneyland, take my kids to Disneyland sometimes. We can enjoy those things, but we are not to love those things. We're not to love the system, sorry. We're not to love the system. And we're not to love or enjoy any of these things more than we love and enjoy Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, you know, we've all suffered for the faith to some extent. If you haven't, you need to maybe do some self-examination there. But, you know, we've all suffered. But, but the kind of suffering that we endure, it pales in comparison to the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for me, for you. And to partake in the suffering of Christ is the greatest honor a Christian could ever have. I mean, I've heard of, I've heard of prisoners in the Middle East, people who are, are, uh, are being imprisoned for the sake of Christ. In, in, I mean, this is pretty universal. This happens in the Middle East, wherever people are suffering for the sake of Christ. I've heard people say over and over that they are honored and humbled to be chosen to suffer for the sake of Christ. It is an honor to suffer for Christ. Now, as we close, I want to I want to talk about one thing here in our passage, chapter two, verse uh, sixteen. He says, "For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world." Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This harkens back to Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world, right? The serpent comes into the garden and he starts talking to the woman. He starts talking to Eve. I'll start reading in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He's attacking God's word. Has God really said that? 
And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Here he goes again, challenging God's word. You surely will not die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, She took from its fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Did you see that? The lust of the flesh. When she saw that the, the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. And when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. The boastful pride of life. It's all right there in Genesis 3. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is what is in the world. We are not to love the world nor the things in the world. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's not from God. But it is from the world. I know it's hard. I struggle. I struggle sometimes. I'm tempted to love the world. It can be very tempting sometimes. And that's why we need to stay in the fellowship. We need to stay in God's Word. We need to be reading God's Word, studying it, meditating on it. We need to have Christians around us to hold us accountable and to remind us that we are not to love the world. We are to love God. The world is passing away and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We are to live for God and we are to reject this evil system in the world. So that's my prayer for me, for you, for everyone, all believers in this world that we would not love the world, but that we would live for God, that we would love God and God alone. And that we would reject this evil system in the world. So that's our passage. That's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. We'll pick up in verse 18 next time. I love you all.